Well, out of all of the events that happen in Jesus' life, it seems like the one that ought to be obvious, the one that ought to be least disputed, the one that ought to be least questioned is Jesus' death and burial. I mean, after all, if Jesus was just a man, men die, right? And men who die, men who are dead, are usually buried. This ought to be sort of obvious. But yet, it might surprise you that the historical accounts of Jesus' death on the cross are frequently questioned. Even early on in early church history, there were groups such as the Docetists. Now, these folks, they didn't question whether Jesus was fully God. They questioned whether Jesus was fully man. They believed that he only appeared to be a man. And so only appearing to be a man, he couldn't really be born. He couldn't really die on the cross. He couldn't really be buried. He couldn't really rise again. He only appeared to be all of those things. Muslims believe that no prophet of God ever dies, but rather Allah takes them to heaven. So holding that Jesus was truly a prophet of God, they have a number of theories to explain how Jesus didn't really die on the cross and was buried. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, clearly these folks are, their religious zeal has somehow impeded their logic, their intellect, their, their reason or rationale, it might even surprise you that even in the scientific modern age of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, there have been many who have argued from science or reason that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And it's not because they, they believe that he was the Son of God. It's not that they believe that he was a prophet of God. Their, their beef was not really with Jesus as a, as a man at all. Their beef was with the resurrection. The issue is like, okay, how could Jesus have appeared to die on the cross and then three days later there's an empty tomb? So there's been a number of theories that have been presented. Well, either the disciples stole Jesus' body or they killed the wrong man or the one that applies particularly to Jesus' death, that Jesus merely swooned. He wasn't really dead. He just fainted. He passed out from all of the pain and appeared to be comatose. And, and because the centurion was no doctor, he had mistakenly said that Jesus was dead. And they took him down from the cross, they put him in the grave, but he wasn't really there. He wasn't really dead. He was, he was, he was still alive. And so when they placed him in that tomb and, and they wrapped his body in linen, that, that that linen served as like a bandage for his entire body and the cool air of the temple just revived him so that he either walked out of there or with the help of his conniving disciples, they took him out of there. What ought to be the least contested issue regarding Jesus' life is actually one of the greatest. And why? Why would people question Jesus' death? doesn't seem to make sense. Well, this is why. Because we all come to the story of Jesus' death with presuppositions. We all come to the story of Jesus with ideas or notions, things that we're willing to believe, things that we're not willing to believe. We all come with a lens through which we view the world, and that includes Jesus. And these preconceived notions affect how we view Christ, whether or not it was possible for him to die whether those beliefs are that Jesus was the Son of God but not really man, so he could not really die, or that he was a prophet of God and therefore could not die, or whether we think that the bodily resurrection is somehow impossible, or we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and was buried, we all come to this text 
with preconceived notions about Jesus' life and death. We all do. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to understand that you have those, know what they are, and examine them against the text of Scripture. Examine them against Mark's historical account of the death and burial of Jesus. This passage that we're looking at this morning is Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. It's page 853 in the Bibles, there in the chairs. This passage gives us clear and explicit evidence that Jesus truly died and Jesus was truly buried. In fact, that's the main idea that Mark is trying to get us to understand this morning. Jesus really died. Jesus' corpse was really buried. This is profound, I know. You guys are already excited. But it's no less true. And so let's read about it. Let's read about Jesus' death and burial and see what Mark has to say to us this morning. Again, it's Mark 15, verses 40 through 47, page 853 in the Bibles, there in the chairs. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Solomon. When Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. First we see in verses 40 and 41 that Jesus' death was witnessed by his followers. After three years of ministry faithfully preaching and teaching with true power, true authority, performing signs and wonders and miracles, things that only God could do, Jesus' true identity and his true purpose have been revealed in his death on the cross. That Jesus, the Son of God, died under God's anger to bring sinners to God. This was the powerful truth that was then declared, at least in part, in verse 39, by the most unlikely person imaginable, this Roman centurion. This man who was a commissioned officer, he was loyal to the empire. He was a Jew hater. He was the man who was responsible for carrying out the orders to execute Jesus. But yet he declares Jesus' true identity. Jesus had uttered this loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that God himself had opened the way for men to be reconciled, to come to him. And this Roman centurion was given eyes to see and a mind and a heart to believe so that his mouth was open to declare that truly this man was the Son of God. And it's at this point that we pick up with Mark's account of these women in verse 40. Mark tells us who they were. Mary Magdalene, Mary, 
mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and then Salome. Now Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph, was more than likely the same Mary that we read about quite a while back in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus' mother. In Mark 6, Jesus returned home to his hometown of Nazareth where he faced with disbelief from his neighbors and family and friends. And it says that, that they asked, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judas and Simon? Are his sisters not with us? And they took offense at him. Now, given the similar description, we have no reason to doubt that this was Jesus' mother. Right? And some people say, well, why didn't he just say so? Well, I think Mark does it in order to distance her from Jesus. See, Mary is far from being the Theotokos, the God-bearer, to be worshipped in Mark. In fact, she's anything but that. In chapter 3, we saw that her, along with her, her children, were there to gather Jesus because they thought that he had gone out of his mind. In chapter 6, we see her distancing herself from Jesus. And now here in chapter 15, she is following Jesus, but she's following him at a distance. And so Mark gives that kind of space and identifies her with her other sons rather than with Jesus himself. And that's not even surprising because James and Jude, they do the very same thing. Even though they're brothers of Jesus, right? If you read the book of James, you read the book of Jude, both of them identify themselves not by being the brother of Jesus. You notice that? Now, since Mark has dropped these women just kind of out of nowhere into the story, he is kind enough to give us a little bit of background. He tells us in verse 41 that when Jesus was in Galilee, these women followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So these women had been with Jesus for a while. They'd followed him around. They'd heard many of his teachings. They'd seen many of the miracles that he had performed. They, they knew basically who Jesus was. They kind of had the same benefit as one of the 12 disciples. I'm sure that they stood many times before Jesus, just in awe and astonishment of all the things that he said and all the things that he did. But now this time they're amazed again, only as their Lord and Savior, this Christ that they've been hoping for, hung dead on the cross. The man whom they had loved, the man whom they'd served, was dead. Now, Mark mentions these women for a couple of reasons. First of all, he commends them to us. Right? He, he wants us to learn from them. They, they did something that even his 12 disciples would not do. They were there with Jesus at his death. They continued to follow him. They were with Jesus. Now, where the 12 disciples had either betrayed Jesus or denied Jesus or abandoned Jesus, these women stuck with him. Isn't that a testimony? I mean, think about churches today. How many of them, their leadership has been abandoned by men? But yet the church continues because women stand in the place and do what the men have not. Even when these women's hopes had seemed dashed, even as their bruised and beaten Messiah was crucified, dying in agony on the cross as God's curse for sin had fallen upon him, they did not leave. They stayed. They stayed until the end. Guys, I want you to think in your mind. Try to put yourself in their place. Imagine the disappointment and despair that these women would have felt. Imagine the agony. 
sense of hopelessness. I mean, they had loved and followed Jesus. They had ministered to Jesus. And now he's gone. I mean, imagine the grief and heartache. And let this be an encouragement to you. Because here they are. They're, they're in times of grief and, and despair is plaguing their hearts. But yet they stayed with Jesus. Friends, there are times where life will not go as you plan. Where things are difficult. Where grief and despair plagues your own heart. Your hopes might be, might be crushed. But nevertheless, stay by Jesus. As I was meditating on these women, the Psalm 23, verse 4 came to mind. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When life seems hopeless, no matter what your situation is, stand with Jesus. But Mark's primary reason for mentioning these three women is because they served as witnesses to Jesus' death. It's as if Mark is writing to his original audience and he's saying, listen, if you question whether or not Jesus really died or whether he was really buried, go ask these women. Here are their names. You can go find them. You can go talk to them. They will tell you what really happened. Jesus really died, and these women really saw it. Now, lest we think too highly of their faith, because here's what we do. When we read about, at least I, I, I've, I've been prone to do this. When I read about people and their faith in the Bible, I kind of think to myself, I'm not like them. Their faith is so much greater than mine. I can't relate to them. They're just like superhuman, you know, Christians. I mean, that's not what it's about. Lest we think too highly of their faith and ignore their real struggle, the fight of faith that even too they were experiencing the cross, Mark tells us that they were looking on from a distance. They were looking on from a distance. And I think that this is actually what makes their faith so commendable to us because it suggests a struggling faith. They stayed with Jesus, but it was hard. And they were despairing. And that was true. They were at a distance the way Peter followed Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but only at a distance. When Mark uses that phrase, it's never a good thing. Because faithfulness to Christ requires nearness to Christ. You aren't faithful just because you say so, because, but because you seek to walk closely with Jesus. Now these women were clearly more faithful than the disciples who were all cowering in undisclosed locations. But this is not about comparison. The reality is they were following Jesus at a distance. And when the angel of the Lord appears to them in Mark 16, verse 8, we see that trembling and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's not that they were sure that Christ would rise again, even though he had told his disciples that multiple times. They didn't go to the tomb in chapter 16, verse 1, because they believed that they would find the tomb empty. They went to anoint a dead body. They were at a distance from Jesus because they feared for their lives. And so we see the centurion who at most had only 
been in Jesus' presence for hours, confessed that he was truly the Son of God, but yet these women who had followed Jesus and ministered to Jesus and loved Jesus for how long? Said and did nothing. And again, like so many times before in Mark, the internal evidence in Mark proves its reliability. It proves its historical accuracy. Because let's face it, guys, if this is a made-up story about Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't write this kind of stuff in, do you? Right? If you're going to make up a story in that day and age, one, you don't have your first witnesses be women. That's culturally taboo. I'm sorry, women. It's true. Glad it's not like that today. Okay? But that's nevertheless, that's the way it was. And you certainly don't have them standing at a distance in fear. Right? You have them be brave. And you don't have your soon-to-be leaders of the church cowering somewhere that you don't even know where they are. Right? If this was a made-up story, what you have is like you would have them all, men and women together, just like they're like no doubt in their minds. They're running up and down the street saying, hey, he's not dead. He's not dead. Or he's dead now, but in three days he's going to rise. But that's not what they do at all. And so even here in this testimony, we see this is this couldn't be made up. That's not what happens. Instead, Mark gives us a very real, historical, down-to-earth account how even the very first followers of Jesus, even the most faithful, struggled to believe. They failed to understand. They were overcome by their emotions. But at the end of the day, God was faithful to complete the work that he begun in them. And they grew in their faith, first little by little, and then more and more until they gave glory to God despite their present circumstances. So friends, let this be a comfort to you. Let this be a hope. Let this serve to spur you on towards perseverance in the faith. There's a reason why they call faith a fight. Do you realize that? Very few of us are ever going to be given such immediate, bold, and strong faith that we can just jump into the fight and, com- and contend for the title. Most of us have to start at welterweight. And after years and years of training and hardship, we might eventually get a shot at the title, right? You all are thinking of Mike Tyson's punch out right now, aren't you? Because I was. Okay, good. I'm glad you're not. But, but the reality is faith is a fight. And we have to get in there and fight. We have to train. We have to labor. We have to persevere. It's not going to be easy. Circumstances will be difficult. But do not remain in fear. Do not remain at a distance from Jesus, but rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' death was witnessed by his followers. Second, Jesus' death was received by the converted. Let's pick up in verse 42. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus died around 3 p.m. Interestingly enough, this is the same time that they sacrificed the Passover lambs. 
There were only a few hours left in the day of preparation. That's the day before the Sabbath. At sundown, it would be the Sabbath. And since Jews were not allowed to work on the Sabbath, and since, according to Deuteronomy 21, if a cursed man hung dead on, the, on a tree, on a cross, for more than a day, it would bring curse upon the entire land. Something had to be done about Jesus, and there were only a few hours to do it. He's dead. We've got to deal with this. And so Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea steps forward, and he asks for the body. And Mark also tells us that this was a respected man. He was a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the very group that condemned Jesus to death. He says he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. If you read the other gospel accounts, Mark or Matthew tells us that Jesus or that, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Luke adds that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the council's decision and action. John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And in fact, John tells us in chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, that many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. But again, if you think back into what Mark has told us, he said that the whole council was seeking testimony against Jesus. He said that they all condemned him and they all held this consultation and bound Jesus and delivered him over to Pilate. So how do we square all of this information about Joseph of Arimathea? How should we understand him? Was he a believer? Was he not? Was he faithful? Was he not? Where was he on this? Well, perhaps prior to Jesus' death, Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. But even at the point at which they nailed Jesus to the cross, I don't think he had found it yet. You see, Mark is simply laying out the raw details here. He's just giving us the data. He's not concerned about reading certain things in. I think that when Matthew wrote his account, he's writing to Jews who probably know Joseph of Arimathea. And so he's writing from his vantage point back in and saying, okay, Joseph is a disciple of Jesus. I mean, Luke, he, you know, he says some nice words about Joseph. He said, you know, he, Joseph wasn't consenting to the decisions and actions of the council John is a lot more blunt, a lot more honest in saying that he believed, but he still believed in other things more. But in Mark, in Mark, interest and intrigue in Jesus means nothing. In Mark, having an open mind or agreeing with Jesus is no sign of faith. Simply looking for the kingdom of God without following the king is insufficient. It's not enough simply not to consent to Jesus' death. You must take a stand for him. And following him secretly while preferring the glory of man rather than the glory of God means nothing. You see, in Mark, it's this way in all the Gospels, but particularly in Mark, faith is outward. Faith is public confession and active demonstration. Faith is following Jesus. It is physically following him, not just thinking or saying that you do. And so if you put it all together, what I think you find, what I think you see in Joseph is a man who is very amiable towards Jesus. He's very close 
you know, thinking well about Jesus, but up to the point where Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was on the wrong side because he did not take a stand for Jesus. He did not confess. He did not support. He did not actively follow. But just like the Roman centurion, just like the Roman centurion, something happened in Jesus' death that opened Joseph's eyes. I think that was his conversion. Joseph, you have to understand, was a very wealthy and prominent man. He was a respected member of the council. He held a position of authority. And apparently he had a good enough relationship with Pilate that he could come to Pilate and ask for the body. But for him to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus took great risk, took an unbelievable amount of risk. I mean, Joseph could have lost his career. Joseph could have lost his reputation, his status in the community. Joseph could have lost his wealth. He could have put his family at risk. What he did in asking for Jesus' body could have been considered treachery both by the Jews and by the Romans. He could have been completely ostracized from both ends. He could have been thrown into prison. Even worse, he could have been killed for his request. And why did he do it? So that he could place Jesus in his own tomb, in his own grave. And he, just like the centurion, shows us that God is gracious even to the men who were responsible for killing Jesus. Whether it be a Jewish councilman, who though he did not actively consent to the decision made, he did not stand against it, therefore he's lumped in with the whole, and the Roman officer who executed Jesus. His eyes had been opened in Christ's death, and as a result, he took courage and acted upon the faith that he had been given. What an amazing testimony. We just see what God does in the lives of two of the most unlikely men. I mean, sure, Joseph was a lot more respected than the centurion. Sure, they said good things about Joseph, but the reality is he was a part of the council that condemned Jesus to death. And the other one was the one who who carried out the orders to nail him to the cross. God opened their eyes, and it's an amazing thing. But we need to understand something. It takes a lot more to follow Christ, to be saved, than looking for the kingdom of God by your own means or in your own manner. You can't do them in in, in the way that you want. Saving faith requires more than being called a good and righteous person. Salvation requires more than calling yourself a disciple of Jesus. It's not enough to follow him in secret or in fear of others, believing without truly confessing because you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Saving faith in Christ 
confesses. Saving faith takes courage. Saving faith is outward and active. Saving faith risks. Saving faith sacrifices. Those two most important words in the story of Joseph of Arimathea was that Joseph took courage. He took courage. Friends, it costs to follow Christ. For many, it has cost them dearly. It cost Joseph, could have cost him everything in order to simply bury Jesus in a tomb. Could have cost him everything. And what makes us think that we are any different? What makes us think that the centuries that have gone by have allowed us a certain level of luxury or passivity in the pursuit of following Christ? Why do we think that Jesus' statement in Mark 8, 34 through 38, does not apply to us or applies to us in some Lesser fashion, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake or for the gospel's sake will save it. For what can a man gain, or what does a man profit to gain the whole world and to forfeit his life? For, for what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me, and of my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Why do we think that that doesn't apply to us? Friends, do not buy into this watered-down, play-it-safe, comfortable, convenient spin that many churches in our country place upon Christianity. It is not there. That is not what it means to follow Christ. If for our sakes he died, then all have died. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, friends, I, I realize how weighty this sounds. I get it. I'm with you. If we're all honest with ourselves, there is part of us, maybe a very large part of us, that is scared by this idea. That it freaks us out. And it should be. Because it costs to follow Jesus. It does. But take courage. The cost of discipleship only seems excessive if we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The cost of discipleship only seems expensive if we forget how much it cost Jesus. That the infinite, eternal Son of God, the King of the universe, suffered and died in our place, in order to bring us to God, the righteous and the innocent for the guilty. The cost of discipleship only seems costly 
when we can't see the kingdom of God for the petty little realms that we're trying to scrape together for ourselves here on this earth. So friends, take courage. Take courage. This seems costly, but it is no sacrifice. Instead, receive the sacrifice of Christ. So far we've seen that Jesus' death has been witnessed by his followers. It's been received by the converted. Third, his death was verified by the Romans. So Joseph came up. He took courage. At that point, his eyes were opened, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And in verse 44, we read, The Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not he was already dead. And when he learned that the centurion, from the centurion, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, right away, there's two verses there. It mentions that Jesus is dead four times. Did you get that? Pilate's surprised that he's already, he had already died. He summoned the centurion, asked him whether he was dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, the dead body, to Jesus. Now, often it would take days for people to die on crosses. And so it's no wonder that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. He was shocked by it. But Joseph had to come and ask Pilate for the body because the bodies of those who are condemned were warred to the state. They were now the Romans' bodies to do with as they pleased. And often what they would do is leave them hanging on the cross for weeks. Let the birds pick them apart. Where they would rip them down and throw them in ditches so wild dogs could eat them. And they did this as a sign of power and authority and to show their complete disdain and intolerance for any kind of disorder. It was a rare thing for someone, especially someone that's not family, to ask for the body of someone who has been condemned. Perhaps due to his relationship with Joseph or or the fact that he knew that Jesus was innocent, or maybe just out of Jewish sensibility, knowing kind of like they, they considered the land would be cursed if a man hung on the tree, Pilate looked into it. He summoned the centurion who was responsible to make sure that the condemned die in order to verify it. Now, if you might be thinking, well, wait, wait, wait a second, isn't this the same centurion who confessed that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, wouldn't that be sort of a conflict of interest? Wouldn't he just sort of lie about it to let him... Let him off the hook. And I'm like, well, yeah, it was the same centurion. And under pain of death, his position required that he make sure that everyone who hung on the cross died. That was his job. That's why he was there guarding the crosses. This is why John tells us how they broke the legs of the two men who hung next to Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So not only was the centurion himself competent to tell whether or not Jesus was dead, he's seen, we don't even know how many crucifixions, he could tell a dead body when he sees one, but in addition to that, they made sure that he was dead in stabbing him in the side. And so Mark tells us that when Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And even again, that word corpse is telling because a very particular word in Greek. It doesn't mean body. It only means corpse. It only means dead body. Now, friends, I have to tell you that 
these men have no reason to lie about Jesus' death. They have nothing to gain from it. So why should we doubt it? I know we live in an age of skepticism and in an age of dishonesty. But we have to keep in mind what's happening here, that this is not the age that they live in. We need to be reasonable about this. Now, if the centurion wasn't a believer, okay, his loyalty to Rome would require him to tell the truth. If he lied, which again, if he wasn't a believer, he would have no cause to lie. If he lied and the truth came out, then he would die. They would kill him. So under pain of death, he had to tell the truth. His loyalty to Rome would demand his honesty. But if he was a believer in Christ, there's no difference because I think he was a believer, then his loyalty to Jesus demanded his honesty. You don't honor Jesus who calls himself the truth by telling a lie. Loyalty to Jesus demands honesty. Friends, as Christians, the only time where dishonesty comes into play in our lives is when we're seeking to be loyal to ourselves and not to Christ. Right? When we're seeking to protect ourselves or to advance ourselves or to get something that we want or try to avoid something that we don't want, that's when we lie. So when we put ourselves and our wants and our desires before Christ, we put ourselves first. Dishonesty is not following Christ. It would be following self. And so why should we think his followers would be dishonest? This is also why we can trust in the accounts of Scripture. Because God's people, Christ's followers, are bound to honesty. They're bound to tell the truth. No matter how humbling, no matter how degrading it is for them personally, because let's face it, the gospel accounts were were the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. And it doesn't paint a pretty picture of them, does it? But they were honest. If they lack integrity, they bring reproach upon Christ. And that same truth applies to us. If you say that you believe in God, the creator, the giver, the standard of all truth, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, if you say that you've received the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth into your life, then you are bound to tell the truth. Not just part, but the whole truth. Christians are called to be the most honest and most trustworthy people in the world. Our following Christ and being honest ought to set us apart from our culture. We should look completely different in that way, distinct from them. Friends, if you lie, if you deceive, if you hide or withhold the truth from others, then you prove that you are not trustworthy. And you bring shame and reproach upon Christ and his church. 
in all things, we are to verify the truth. We tell the truth. I just have to ask you, what does it say about Christ if unbelievers are more honest and trustworthy than his followers? And so Jesus' death was witnessed by his followers, received by the converted, and verified by the Romans. Fourth, in verses 46 and 47, we see that Jesus' death was confirmed in his burial. It says in verse 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So after Jesus' death on the cross was confirmed by the Romans, Joseph received his body. He literally took it down from the the cross and placed it in the tomb, a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now this would have been Joseph's tomb. This would have been a new tomb. This would have been an expensive tomb. It was one that was freshly cut out of the rock. And in true class, Joseph purchased this linen shroud at his own expense to wrap Jesus' body and laid him in that tomb. And this costly burial actually serves as fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and in a rich man, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Friends, if Jesus was merely swooning, if Jesus had not really died but was just sort of comatose, why the expense? Why such effort? Why why such care? I mean, you you just think about it. They pulled Jesus off the cross. You think that even a comatose man would moan at the pain? You think that as they cleaned his body or wrapped him tightly in this long linen shroud that they would have seen a twitch? They would have seen him breathe a little bit more heavily. But they didn't. And if they did know he was alive, then they would know that he needed medical help. If he needed medical help for medical help to come and get in, or they needed Jesus to get out, you don't push a big stone to block the entrance of the tomb. Every action that they take from here on out proves that they believe, without a doubt, that he is dead. It doesn't make sense if they thought he was alive, for them to do what they did. But what is ironic about this? If you read through Mark, it's really only at Jesus' burial that we see Jesus given the honor that was due him. It was only at his burial after Jesus had died, that we really see these expressions of love and honor and care for Jesus that he deserved. Whether that be in the woman in chapter 14 who anointed Jesus for his burial, spent that large sum of money as he anointed his body with that alabaster flask of pure nard. Or whether it's Joseph who laid Jesus in an extravagant tomb or Nicodemus that we read about in John 19, who brought 75 pounds of this mixture of myrrh and aloe as an expensive perfume, i.e. air freshener, for the tomb. Or in these women, who knowing that the time was limited, 
Jesus would not be properly anointed. And so they follow, they follow Joseph to the tomb where he's laid so that they could come after the Sabbath and anoint the body of Jesus. They all knew that he was dead. And they were all displaying their love for him in his death. And even in his death, even in their hopelessness, even in their mourning, they loved and cared for Jesus. And friends, this is the real application to us. In Joseph, Nicodemus, and these three women, we see that the greatest moment of utter despair in these followers' lives was actually the greatest display of their faith. Greatest moment of complete despair was the greatest display of their faith. They knew that Jesus was dead, but still they loved him. Their hopes surrounding Jesus had been dashed, but still they honored him. And though they did not understand why or grasp what would happen just a few days later, their actions show that they believed that he was the Christ. And though the world seemed bleak, they had found the kingdom of God. Joseph found the kingdom of God, and he took courage and asked for the body of Jesus. These women will find the kingdom of God most clearly sometime a little bit later. Nicodemus, we don't know for sure. But nevertheless, we know the end of the story that they did. Friends, we all experience dark times. We all experience pain and hardship and loss, times of grief. We all experience situations that do not make sense or that we simply can't understand. Our hopes will fail. Our hearts will grieve. There will be times where we, didn't, we know that the truth that we believe does not align with our present circumstances. And friends, in those times, we must take courage and stand firm in what we know to be true, even though we don't feel like it. For us, there is hope. You see, in the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus has reconciled the entire world to himself. Those who have sinned and rebelled against God can now be restored to him. We have the promise that a new day will dawn that the eternal kingdom of God is ours by faith in the King Jesus, if we would turn away from ourselves, turn away from our sin, turn away from our seeking our own glory and our own selves to following Christ. And friends, do not let your present circumstances or situation or popularity or ambition or riches keep you from finding Him. Do not let your feelings or sensibilities or reason blind you from the truth. Jesus truly suffered. Jesus truly died. Jesus was truly buried. But Jesus truly rose. Friends, death and despair are not the last words. Jesus is. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I pray for us right now. 
we all have come here with with uh, situations and events and things plaguing our minds. We've all come here in in disbelief and apathy. We've all come here seeking our own glory rather than the glory that comes from you. But God, I pray we learn from the passage that was presented to us that, that there is hope. Even in the darkest times, for Jesus' disciples, as, as he was dead and buried, there was hope. I pray that we would see the truth and beauty of Christ and his death and his resurrection. I pray that that would sink deep into our hearts and just change the way we think about everything around us. I pray that we would stand firm, that we would take courage, that we would believe even when life doesn't seem to make sense, because in the end we have an unquenchable, inexhaustible living hope in the risen Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray.